Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're going to fly, we fly like eagles. Good morning. Good morning. It's Monday. It's Easter Monday, the 10th of April, 2023. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Glory. Hallelujah. We live on this side of Easter and we want to rejoice and be glad. We want to recognize and acknowledge who Jesus is, the death he died on our behalf, um, and the glorious reality of his resurrection that provides the opportunity for you and I to live in newness of life. That is the heart desire of God today. I hope that you have set your faith in Jesus. I, have, I hope you have um, set your hope on the resurrection. Our growing your faith verse of the day comes from John chapter 15, verses 16 and 17. Jesus is speaking here to his disciples. And so if you are a disciple of Jesus, I want you to hear these words today. Um, as well. And if you're not yet a disciple of Jesus, today's a great day to begin that journey, to um, to look at that empty tomb and to say to yourself, what what is that all about? What does it mean that um, a man who wasn't just a man, but also fully God, lived a life that was absolutely righteous before God? We would call it a sinless life, uh, a life without sin, and that he died a substitutionary or um, a death in your place so that you might be restored to a relationship with God the Father through the sacrifice of the Son. And then what does it mean? What does it mean that that same Jesus, having been credibly dead and buried and entombed, rose from death to newness of life, ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. What what does that mean? What possibilities does that open up? Not only for eternity, but for life here and now. Jesus says to his uh, disciples in the 15th chapter of the gospel according to John. So this is in the midst of the passion narrative. This is uh, following the Last Supper. They're on their way through the Kidron Valley uh, to what we call the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is going to bow down and Ask God if it be possible to remove this cup, which he knows is not possible, but never hurts to ask, right? If there be some other way, make it so. But then he says, not my will, but thine be done. And he goes from there to the cross. So it's in the midst of all that that Jesus is teaching his disciples about the vine and the branches. And he says to them in that context, John chapter 15, verses 16 and 17, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command. Love each other. Do you think you chose to believe and follow Jesus? Do you, do you, think, <laughs> do you think that, uh, yeah, this is all up to you? 
Jesus actually sees that differently. Jesus says here to his disciples, both then and now, I chose you. How does it feel to be chosen by God? That's a pretty amazing reality. And Jesus doesn't just choose his disciples in terms of who will be saved. He chooses them. He chooses us. He appoints them. He appoints us to go and produce lasting fruit, good fruit. He chose them to serve as a living demonstration to the world of what it looks like to relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, as co-heirs of the kingdom of heaven, as ambassadors of the kingdom of God. He chose them. He chose us to bear lasting fruit. What kind of fruit? Paul gives us a list in Galatians chapter 5. This is where the Apostle Paul talks about what it looks like to live a life in and with and for Jesus. Paul says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, called, chosen. This is the same language that Jesus uses. He says, but don't use your freedom. Don't use the fact that God chose you to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself, or as Jesus says here in this passage, love one another. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. And so I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you're um, not to do whatever you want. If you're led by the Spirit, You're not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. These are the acts of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Paul says, I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit... The fruit that Jesus is saying in this uh, passage, hey, I chose you, I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against these things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. So those are the words of Paul in reflection on this same subject, this same topic of what it means to be chosen in Christ Jesus, appointed to go and produce lasting fruit. And it all begins with love. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. This is Easter Monday, and we're going to talk next about what it means to be Easter people. Easter people. That's right. Yesterday was Easter. We are the Easter people. We live on knowledgeably on this side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that knowledge changes everything. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, 
and on which you now take your stand. You know, that that's actually really just a good exercise for every Christian every single day in every single relationship. Hey, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you now take your stand. I mean, whatever else might be in the headlines, let this be in the headlines today. Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Glory, hallelujah. Paul says, by this gospel you were saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of our brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, which means they have since died. Then he appeared to James. He's still talking here about the resurrection appearances of Jesus. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. And there you would have to read the testimony of Paul and his conversion experience on the road to Damascus, where Jesus appeared to him. Paul goes on to say, again, we're in 1 Corinthians 15, if you want a point of reference here, picking up at verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether them, then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. This is what we preach. This is what we believed. What is of first importance? What are you passing on to others that you also in turn received? Are you passing the gospel on today? We're going to talk about Easter. We're going to talk about what it means to be Easter people It's not just a day on the calendar, and it's not over. It's, in fact, just beginning. Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And that one thing, that one thing changes everything else. Let's talk about it next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. Thank you so much for being here today. Maybe you visited a church for the very first time yesterday and heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe you heard that he is risen and he is risen indeed, and you're tuning in today and you're like, hmm, I want to know more about that. Um, Easter changes everything. There's everything uh, that happens before Easter, and then there's everything else. Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. This one reality changes everything else. Everything else. 
The death of Christ upon the cross and his resurrection from the dead form the epicenter of the Christian belief system, the Christian life, the Christian themselves. Like, uh, this is it. This is uh, the most important thing to know um, about me is the resurrection of Jesus. It's the epicenter. It's the foundation. It's the linchpin of Christianity. And of this, we are witnesses. This we believe. By this gospel, we are saved. To this, we hold firm. This we preach. This is what the Bible says about Easter, by the way, about the resurrection of Jesus. Like, of this, we are witnesses. This we believe. This is the gospel by which we are saved. To this, we hold firm. This we preach. This we pass on as of first importance. What is of first importance? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared. This is the witness that we have received. This is what we preach. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Like, we're false witnesses about God. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And those who have died are totally lost. But he is risen. He is risen indeed. It wasn't just the women who saw him in uh, the garden of the empty tomb. And it wasn't just two two guys on the road to Emmaus. And it wasn't just Peter and John or even just the 12. It wasn't just Thomas. Um, it, It wasn't just Paul whom Jesus met on the road to Damascus. There were more than 500 people who saw Jesus on one occasion between his resurrection and his ascension. And it has been countless billions since, and of them I am one. I can testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you've met him, so can you. Our witness to the hope of the resurrection is, yes, based on the historic veracity of Christ's bodily resurrection from a tomb more than 2,000 years ago, but it is also our experience of the resurrection, our personal experience. Thomas Oden put it this way. Uh, this, this is in a, in a piece called The Event Named Resurrection. Whatever it was that occurred after Jesus' crucifixion, one thing is absolutely clear. It was called resurrection. Of that, there can be no doubt. All who were met by it called it the same thing. Um, The resurrection of Christ changed everything. It changed people's view of death. It changed their view of life. It changed their view of God. It changed their view of one another. It changed their view of themselves. It changed their view of all the possibilities. The resurrection empowered the early Christian community with incredible courage in the face of seemingly impossible obstacles and terrifying threats. Does that sound at all familiar to you? Why? Why did these average, ordinary Middle Eastern people 2,000 years ago live as if the whole world had changed? Because it had. Their trust was not in a broken world. Their trust was in a risen Christ whom they saw and encountered and touched and ate with and walked with and watched ascend into heaven. From there, they could not only sit together at the Lord's table across every dividing line of hostility that was technically between them as people, 
they could face wild animals in the Roman Colosseum. The earliest church reasoned it this way. In Jesus' resurrection, the end is already present. The end is now known to those who live. What God accomplishes in Christ is already accomplished. It is finished, as Jesus says from the cross. We've got nothing left to fear. Thomas Oden says, The resurrection is so decisive that the importance of all other theological issues pales beside it. It focuses on nothing less than the final revelation of the will of God in all of human history. Like, this is it, people. If you don't get Easter, you don't get Jesus. If you don't get Easter, you don't get to call yourself a Christian. If you don't get Easter, you are not a disciple. Like, it, this is it. Something so decisive happened in human history for human beings in the resurrection of Jesus that it does not and it cannot fit into any ordinary category of understanding. It trumps every other news item today. And every news item that you're going to be confronted with today has to be seen in the context of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says this is of first importance. First of first importance. Not somewhere else down the list. First importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he appeared. And then he gives a whole list of, of those appearances. The resurrection of Jesus really happened, people. People really saw him. He appeared to lots and lots of people on several occasions over the course of time. The resurrection of Jesus is not a theological metaphor to be embraced by faith. It's a concrete historical reality. It took place in real time, in a real place, to a real person, on a real day. Easter is not about plastic eggs and candy and bonnets and parades and ham. It's about Jesus. We glory in the resurrection of Jesus, not as a nice idea that gives us hope, but as the central tenet of the Christian faith on which our salvation to eternal life absolutely depends. Like, this is it. This is the it. I don't know. I got, I got, I got pages that I could talk about here. <clears throat> um, let me just summarize it this way. Jesus didn't come so that we could live comfortably ignoring him. Jesus didn't rise from the dead so that we could comfortably ignore the reality of God. Every breath, every moment. And Jesus didn't come so we could comfortably ignore the needs of others or the needs of the world in which we live. Yes, the confession of Christ is enough to be saved. But there is a life that Christ gives, that is lived in resurrection power, that we would now live as Christ in the world. Galatians 2.20 captures it this way. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in my body, I live by faith. Indeed, by the faithfulness of God's Son who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the life of discipleship. 
That's the life of an Easter Christian, an Easter person. It's one thing to say that you believe that Jesus died for you to forgive your sins. It's another thing altogether to recognize that he now lives and we now live for him. When you seriously consider how and why and for what you're living, is it Jesus? Are you living today as an Easter person to not to make a name for yourself, but to make the name of Jesus Christ known to others? Of this, you are a witness. Are you bearing witness today? That's really the question for Easter people. Paul was willing to die for Jesus. But of of equal or maybe even greater importance, Paul was willing to offer his life as a living sacrifice to live for Christ every day, moment by moment, sharing with others the good and the great news of Jesus Christ of first importance. So that's my prayer for us today as we arise from the grave of complacency to the glory of a life animated by the Holy Spirit of the risen Christ, that we would not only count on the death of Jesus for our salvation, but that we would live for Christ, that we might know what it looks like to live a life worthy of the calling of the one who died and, yes, rose again, that we might be called Christians. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives, well, so can I. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. Daniel Bennett is going to join us next. We're going to um, bring the mind of Christ to bear on some of the headline news of the day. Maybe you have heard about the questions related to um, gifts, trips that Justice Clarence Thomas and his wife have taken over many, many years um, with, you know, a very, very uh, financially um, blessed individual. Maybe you have heard the news that Mike Pence is being compelled to... uh, testify, order to testify in a grand jury um, case related to the former president. Um, Maybe you have uh, heard that um, members of Congress are encouraging the executive branch to ignore a ruling by a federal judge. Yeah, we got all kinds of challenges as Christians in the culture today. And so Daniel Bennett is going to help us think about those and, um, and even the challenge of deep political thinking as Christians. So let's uh, think deeply together here this morning. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. Daniel Bennett is here from John Brown University and the Uneasy Citizenship blog. Good morning, Daniel. Morning, Carmen. He is risen. He has risen indeed. Amen. Amen. Um, it changes everything. Um, okay, so uh, the rules have changed, or at least um, Justice Clarence Thomas's understanding of the rules have changed. Apparently, just last month, the Judicial Conference, which is the body responsible for setting ethics codes for federal courts, 
clarified its guidance related to personal hospitality and made clear that if you take trips paid for by friends, those are now subject to disclosure requirements. Um, can you brief us in on the challenges that Justice Clarence Thomas and his, well, I guess he is facing them, but the trips were taken yeah. by he and his wife. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, it turns out so during an investigation from a uh, journalist website, ProPublica, uh, they found that Clarence Thomas over the years has taken a number of high profile and very expensive uh, trips at the uh, expense of a uh I, I would say probably a mega donor to the Republican Party, a conservative activist, uh, someone with a lot of money. And, uh, you know, there's no evidence in any way, just to clarify, there's no evidence in any way that these trips were part of a quid pro quo. You know, y- you can hang out on my yacht in exchange for voting for this on this particular direction. Um, the optics, you know, certainly were the were the primary issue. And Clarence Thomas's critics have pointed to this as, you know, another example of why he is unfit to be a Supreme Court justice for Thomas's part, though, he, you know, there there, there were no requirements when he was taking these trips. Um, justices frequently uh, go on, uh, you know, retreats and, and other things that are largely paid for by others, uh, including Anthony Scalia when he passed away. And he was on a he was on a, he was on one of these uh, trips in Texas when he died back in 2016. So I do think it's good that there are going to be heightened requirements for reporting these things. I, I think it's good. The more transparency in government, the better. Um, but uh, the uh, the disclosure wasn't particularly surprising to me, um, nor was the response from from Thomas's critics. Uh, no. And if you looked into all of the ways in which members of Congress and members of the judiciary and lots of other people um, take fancy trips. It's it's mm. not, it's you know right. It's on the bill of others because um, yeah, nobody's got this kind of money except a few. So yeah, I, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and right. to be you know, to be clear, I mean Th- Thomas has uh, you know he he's had quite the career. He's a, an icon of, of of the conservative legal movement, and if uh, you know these donors want to have him out to bolster their their brand or say, Hey, come on this retreat. We're bringing Clarence Thomas out with us. Uh, that's a big selling point for a lot of this crowd. And again, there's no evidence, uh, that this has been part of a, you know, quid pro quo unethical situation. But I will say that any rules that give justices the same type of disclosure requirements as members of Congress or other judges, I think these are generally good things. Yeah. I think disclosure is good. Let the light shine. All right, let's talk about um, Vice President Mike Pence and the um, the judge's decision ordering him to testify and um, his appeal of that. Sure. So uh, the vice president uh, has been kind of at the center of this legal dispute over which whether he can be forced to testify uh, before a grand jury uh, in the context of January 6th and the, uh, the, uh, post 2020 election activities of the Trump administration. Um, this is a really interesting legal question, uh, because usually uh, the executive branch and high ranking members of the executive branch, uh, are usually, uh, sometimes, well, are sometimes successful in claiming exemptions from these types of, uh, testimony requirements. 
um, on the basis of executive privilege and other things. There's also some interesting separation of powers questions involved here, whether the judiciary can compel uh, someone in the presidential line of succession in the executive branch, the number two person behind the president, uh, to testify uh, legally. Uh, I think that's a really interesting kind of in the weeds legal question. Um, but, uh, you know, Mike Pence has said, you know, after this order, he said he's going to continue to fight it. It wouldn't surprise me to see this go to go to the Supreme Court eventually. It's one of those interesting, like I said, separation of powers questions that the court sometimes delves into. Um, but we are we're a ways away from this happening. So it wouldn't surprise me if the vice president, former vice president, doesn't testify before the 2024 election as this legal dispute plays out. Okay, and since we're talking about the relationship between the three branches of government, um, I just want to get your reaction to a totally different story. So (laughs) a a federal judge in Texas, a U.S. district judge for the Northern District of Texas, directed the Food and Drug Administration, which, just to be clear, is an agency of the government. Um, Nobody elected them to halt the approval of a particular drug that has been on the market for a number of years. It absolutely, by the way, produces death for one of the two patients to whom it is administered. Mm -hmm. Now, nobody's talking about it that way, but it is 100% effective in causing the death of one of the two patients involved when it's administered. Mm -hmm. So it's mifepristone. It's one Mm -hmm. of the two drugs that um, are prescribed in the United States of America that will result in um, the abortion of uh, of a child from the womb of a mother. So yes. on Friday, this judge rules that the FDA did not um, approach the approval of this drug in the right way. Right. In re- reaction and response to that, a sitting member of Congress on national television said that the executive branch should ignore the court's ruling in this case because the court is illegitimate. And so we have a member of Congress yes. saying that the executive branch should ignore the ruling of the court. Can you just talk about the relationship between the branches of government here in terms of who has to pay attention to whom? Yeah, well, you know, to the simple answer to that question is they all have to pay attention to each other in different contexts. But the FDA here, uh, there is a strict rulemaking process by which most administrative agencies and the FDA is one of them. They have to go about uh, approving uh, rules and, and uh, products that make it to the market. Um, you'll see this on any medicine. If you go into the supermarket and look on the back, you'll see the FDA logo. Or, or if it's a vitamin supplement or something, it said this has not been evaluated by the FDA, for example. But in order to be you know, sold through the mail and prescribed by doctors, the, this, this drug that you were speaking about uh, had to have been approved by the FDA. It was almost, I believe, 30 years ago. Um, and in the judge's opinion, he cited essentially a hastily uh, and rushed process, uh, partially due to the uh, the proddings of then President Clinton, who had uh, been pushing this as a part of his presidential campaign in 1992. Now, opponents will say the judge is uh, taking a you know a step towards a, a ban on abortion. I don't see it that way. I think this is, despite the uh, the substance of the case, this is really an administ- administrative law case where you have an executive agency that's being ch- uh, alleged that they didn't follow the established rulemaking procedures that Congress outlines. And now it's going to be up to the courts to determine whether we have to go back to the drawing board on this. But as far as the relationship goes, Congress more and more passes laws that are vague. They are ambiguous. 
And the role of the executive branch in response to that, usually with the acquiescence of Congress, is to fill in the gaps. So Congress isn't passing a law saying, here is exactly how you implement the law that we're passing. They're leaving that to the experts in the executive branch, most of whom are unelected career positions uh, who, you know, have been there for 10, 20, whatever years. And then it's up to those experts to implement the laws that Congress passes. Sometimes this is a really hot button question in the case of this medication, like you were talking about, uh, People are going to get really fired up about it. But at the heart of this case, it's an administrative law question and whether the FDA followed the guidelines that Congress laid down almost 30 years ago. All right. Um, for those of you asking additional questions related to this, we'll probably take this topic back up tomorrow yeah. when our guest from the Christian Medical and Dental Association is here. And we'll talk mm. more about uh, mifepristone. We'll talk about what it does. We'll talk about the other drug that it is prescribed with that results in um, uh, not only the the death, but the expulsion of yeah. um, of a fetus. So we're going to talk more about this tomorrow. But Daniel, thank you for responding to it, because I think that the relationship between the um, the parts of our government and how they're designed to work and sometimes how they function better than others in relationship to each other. And then this reality that we have this huge administrative fourth, I don't know, is it the fourth leg, the fourth, what is it, the fourth yeah. something? It's the stepchild of the of the presidency and the executive branch. But it's the, this huge, is what, this it's what, enormous. This, this, is what President, this is what President Trump was critiquing with the deep state. I think it was the wrong way to say it, but there's a lot of people that work in the executive branch with no tangible oversight and a lot of folks see that as problematic unless they're in favor of their policy positions. So I think it's always good to, to go back to the rulemaking process with the executive branch. Yeah. And just 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 look at it. Just just this is a yep. good time to review lots of things. All right. We're going to take a very, very brief break. When we come back, we're going to enter into a deep conversation with Daniel Bennett about the challenge of deep political thinking we spend so much time on the surface. Let's see if we can go deep for a minute. Um, we're going to let uh, Daniel Bennett take us there. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. This is Faith Radio. It's that time again. This is Carmen LaBerge, host of Mornings with Carmen. I see evidence of spring peeking through and bursting forth. And as I look ahead to the Faith Radio spring calendar, I see the spring fundraiser on the horizon. So in preparation, would you please do three things? Number one, pray. Number two, consider offering up matching funds to encourage and stimulate others to give. And number three, did I mention pray? Hey, it's worth repeating, right? And to offer up a matching gift, just email Carter, carter at myfaithradio.com. Let me just pause and ask you, what do you know? What do you know? How do you know it? How deeply can you interact with that which you think you know? How many connections can you draw from that to everything else that you know or think you know and how you know those things? So it's a big conversation about knowledge and information, how we access it, what we can not only put our hands on, but how deeply we know things. Dr. Daniel Bennett is here with us today from John Brown University, the Uneasy Citizenship blog. Um, if you were to visit Daniel Bennett on his Substack, you will find there 
um, a post called On the Challenge of Deep Political Thinking or Why It's Easier to Form Our Opinions Quickly and Loosely. Talk with us about um, what has you concerned here um, and then lead us into a conversation about why it is so challenging to get really good time and depth in terms of our political conversations and discourse today. Right. So this thinking was motivated by a book that I read recently, uh, Nicholas Nicholas Carr's book, The Shallows, which came out about 14 years ago, Um, essentially a reflection on the way the internet has changed, uh, not just what people think about, but how we think uh, at a technical and almost chemical and structural level in our brains. And you know the gist of it is the gist of this is uh, is that the internet has essentially transformed the circuitry in our minds, making it harder to focus on things uh, longer. Um, and he relays tons of anecdotes about how difficult it is to increasingly difficult it is to read more than a few couple of pages of a book before your mind starts to wonder. I certainly feel that. Uh, I imagine your listeners feel this too. And essentially, this is a physical reaction to the ways that the internet and related technologies have uh, changed our, the way our brains work. So it's a really interesting book. It gets into a lot of the history of technology and other types of medium. He's not a Luddite, right? He's not going to say the internet is fundamentally always bad, but he says that there's consequences that we have to reckon with. But as I'm reading this book, I was thinking about the ways that this could affect our political dialogue especially with the way that most of us interact with politics these days, which is on social media and through uh, reading stories on the internet, clicking links, et cetera. There's just very little reward in reflecting deeply on important questions anymore. And I say this as a college professor who does not spend nearly enough time thinking deeply on important questions as I, as I should. Um, mm. in the, if we're really plugged in to a media cycle, and we're focused on the news and the current events of the day. I mean, this is kind of, you know, your thing, Carmen, right? We're focused on what's going on in the world and how we can relate to it as Christians and how, how we can engage the world in a, in a, in a correct way. Um, yeah, everything's changing all the time. And, you know, tomorrow, the things we're talking about might not necessarily be newsworthy. And so we're moving on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And it doesn't reward that contemplation and that reflection that really to form these deep, meaningful connections needs to be taking place. And so, you know, the solution, if there is one, which I talk about in the, in the piece, it's kind of being countercultural. It's being a lot more intentional with the way that we spend our time, not to be a lot, not again, not to reject the internet and say, I'm going to log out of all my social media. You know, you could do that if you want, but um, it's to be more intentional and cognizant of the, of the way the internet is transforming us. And as Christians, it's not just the internet, but how is culture and how is the way we interact with the world around us transforming us as Christians? And I think this is an important question for Christians to be asking about anything. So I think there's challenges. I think there's great opportunities. Um, it's just a matter of what we do with these uh, with this information. Reading this reminded me of um, a book that every one of our kids that went through Christian classical um, school had to mm. read. And the, the book is called How to Read Slowly, Reading mm. for Comprehension. And I, I can actually remember them like suffering through it. Like, like <laughs> it, It's a very short book. Um, yeah. But what it compels and, and sort of the way that it instructs a person to read 
is, I think, the way that um, I remember my, like, 10th grade English teacher um, trying to teach us to read. So that's been a long time ago now. But, like, I, I remember this instruction about reading slowly, even though you were trying to read um, a large amount of material, there was a way to go about doing that where you were genuinely reading for comprehension. I think mm-hmm. most of us are like skimming for salient talking points. We're not reading for comprehension. And I suspect, Daniel, that this applies to our study of Scripture as well. There's a reason we don't know what the Bible says about things. Um, and it's because we've, you know, we've like skimmed it for like the devotional nugget. We haven't yeah. actually read it slowly enough for it to work its way into us so that we can actually know what God says about something. Like there's an application here for the Christian in terms of our study of Scripture. You know, part of this probably comes back to, and I don't think this is a bad thing necessarily, but the goal or the ideal to read through the Bible in one year, right? For, mm. for a lot of us, I mean, that, that's something I've done. Or I 90 know days. You've done. 90 days. How 90, about the 90, 90 days? days. Yeah. 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 You know, this is, this is, this can very, this can be, this can be really helpful and enriching for people, but it could also just be a, a box that you check off, right? And goodness, there's days when you're going through certain books of the Bible when it might be tempting to be like, ah, I just need to skim through this. I just need to get through it. And, and it becomes a chore, a task. Um, that's some, that's a way, not necessarily scripture these days, but it's a way that I often teach uh, students to read academic articles that aren't mm. super like enriching or deep, but more like y'all aren't going to grad school. You guys aren't, you know, researchers, but find the main points and then connect them back to each other. But when we do that with scripture, my goodness, I was at a retreat a few weeks ago and <laughs> one of the things we did as part of the spiritual formation component of the retreat was to focus for, I think, 20 or 30 minutes on just two verses in Psalms. I think it was 46. Mm. And at first it was, I, I my initial reaction was, this is really tedious because I know these words, right? I've read these before. But then after a while, it became clear like, oh, I can reflect on these individual words or turns of phrase and really think about what they mean and how they show the heart of who God is. And I don't do that usually. Uh, we're busy people, right? And it was a good reminder to say there is so much depth in Scripture. Uh, and not surprising, right? We're learning more about who God is and what He's revealed to us through the Word. Um, if only we take the time. What are you taking the time um, to read these days? What's on your, like, read slowly list? Me right now? Mm-hmm. Romans. Hmm. Going through Romans. And it's a book that I've read, you know, it's one of the most important books in the in the New Testament. But it's something that I often just have read in the past through almost doctrinal or theological lens. Hmm. And trying to read it more in terms of a personal personal way. Because there's so much richness there with the with the teachings about sanctification and salvation, et cetera. But I think Romans is a good example of that for me. Um, I'm also reading a biography of Oppenheimer, which is taking forever because it's a really long book, but there's so many details packed in about this one individual life. And yes, Robert Oppenheimer was an extraordinary person and, and, you know, led to amazing or did led an, an amazing life. 
but he's just one person, right? And so if we take, you know, this 800 page book about this one man and then think about, you know, all 8 billion people on earth right now and then everybody else, like how much depth and riches is there into everybody's story? That's just overwhelming. Um, but those are two things. I guess <laughs> Paul's epistle to the Romans <laughs> and a biography of Robert Oppenheimer. <laughs> That's good. I'm, um, I'm doing a really, really slow, slow walk through the Psalms. So I appreciated, you know, spending 20 minutes on two verses. That sounds about right. Um, and then um, my husband and, and Ellie, uh, they are doing a really slow uh, walk together through Francis Schaeffer's True Spirituality, which mm. is a wonderful, it's short, but man, it, I mean, you can, you can read one sentence and spend an hour talking about it. Um, and so if you're looking for something that's, potentially conversational that you could read with someone else. Um, I'll just commend Francis Schaeffer's True Spirituality. If you've never read How to Read Slowly, Reading for Comprehension, I think it's like a Wheaton Press thing. It's not new. It's been out for, you know, 25 years probably. Um, But that's really good. Um, And you could just start with On the Challenge of Deep Political Thinking, which you can find at Daniel Bennett's Substack, uh, the Uneasy Citizenship blog. Hey, as always, thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Thanks, Carmen. Yeah, absolutely. What are you reading slowly today? Let me know. You can always text me, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the grave. Christ is Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He is risen indeed. Glory, hallelujah. What difference, what difference does the resurrection of Jesus make in your life? And you're going to say, well, it makes all, it, it makes all the difference. <clears throat> I want to just ask you to think today about how are you living differently today on this side of the resurrection? How are you thinking differently about the people you encounter? How are you seeing world events differently because Jesus Christ is risen, and he is risen indeed. And so when we talk about um, wars and rumors of wars, when we talk about the travail of creation, when we talk about the challenges that individuals that we love are facing, how does the resurrection of Jesus Christ change how we see those things, how we interact with that information and with those people? How does it change how we live today? as the people of God in the world that he so loves. we got another hour up next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.